Uh, now I'm recording. <laughs> Welcome to Technical Difficulties Land. <laughs> and, and let's cue it for again. <laughs> <sighs> it's breathe, one of those days. Breathe. Yeah, it's. Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by that kind of chaos that is very common experimental biology where you try to do stuff in a bit of a rush and <laughs> nothing, nothing works. Yeah, and then last minute your technical devices stop working that you just tested to be working, to be reliable. And then anyway, here we are now, I entertainers. I'm, I'm at least now at the stage where I'm mature enough that I'm not too like smug when like the big professors like can't use the like, yeah the like, presenter the <laughs> for a while. although although that, that, that's something of a pet peeve of mine whenever i'm like organizing meetings and you have people who are constantly <laughs> on meetings and they just can't figure out like the thing has like three buttons it has like left right and laser and it's also pretty There's much a lot of discussion right oh but does it work does it work is it work is it, yes it's working like correct and yeah <laughs> My, okay. My other pet peeves is people and microphones. Like so often, I see people like holding microphones at like at their hip level, pointing <laughs> downwards and talking to the audience. And be like, "Is this microphone on? Is and it on?" And like, to be like, "We can't hear you. We can't hear you." Uh, yes, it is on, but you suddenly re you're just recording your hips <laughs> instead of your voice. So, but my hips don't lie. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, we're both very tired today. I would say. Um, yeah. It's been a crazy couple of weeks i've been on holidays now i'm back i have to review a manuscript or respond to reviewers comment on my manuscript which um i shared something on insta ooh. right like <laughs> the big fun it is yeah it's it's an interesting experience i have to say it's 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 very hard to be objective about your own work i think i've like the first time you read any reviewing comments you kind of respond to them in a way of like Rah, like yeah. <laughs> like why would you be so like why would you say this like you're you're lying this is not true but um i know more than you yeah <laughs> you idiots you don't understand what like you don't understand what i'm trying to communicate and then like after a few like a little bit of looking at you like okay maybe you don't understand what i'm communicating because i'm not communicating like maybe i'm the problem <laughs> in the end which turns isn't. out the review process has its pros has its pro yeah <laughs> so one of the reviewers we had three reviewers the first one was like loved everything but actually wrote a really sh short review so like it was a very positive review but it wasn't very detailed the second review was very very detailed but like a lot of stuff so and not too many negative things but like just many comments and they had some problems with the way we defined something at the start of the um the paper which basically most of their comments were kind of related to that and once we fix that i think it's okay and then review three was mostly like make everything longer which it's it's not really a proper review it's something called an expert view which is only three thousand words which if you can imagine it's yeah a couple of pages and this person basically like took a um like two sentences which i i really like you start with all the the, the articles and then you make a like a one-page summary of all the information and then you make it into like a paragraph and then you make it into two sentences and this process of like really like smushing all the data down into like a few sentences to comment on it it takes a lot of time and this person like copied the two sentences from my my paper and then like made it back into the one page and i was like oh like they have a point like we it's it's nice to know the details it's nice yeah. to discuss it more but like i just don't know how to find the space like yeah i mean if if the format defines this space then yeah but I maybe mean, it would be cool to to write a book chapter about it but it's not a book chapter that you're writing we'll see so i think there has to be a compromise between putting enough information and and getting the the very short format and i i think we're doing it so my two collaborators are, are super helpful at the moment we're trying to like work on it now but um 
yeah, that's been a process. And it's <laughs> it's one of these things. It's the first time I've done it where like I'm the the only person like I mean previously when I wrote a paper my like I did a lot of the writing but my boss was there always as this backup and I asked him for advice this time but it's it's like on me in the end like I'm I'm the corresponding author and it's yeah and this is a bit like wow (laughs) it's different yeah but the, the the thing about cutting it short is really what I see as one of the biggest issues in science communication whenever researchers like like I'm dabbling in like the whole video business and whenever I see researchers doing it they try to put in all of the details that are in their paper in the video that they're aiming for a general public and they have so it becomes absolutely incomprehensible for anybody who's not in the field and I think we should work on this a bit in the podcast I think like last (laughs) time I presented something from PNAS I got like really into some (laughs) small details and then looking back on it I was like nobody really needed to know that this interacts with this and this interacts (laughs) like I, I can just like Summarize. But in podcast apps, you have skip buttons, so um, you can. They can listen to us at like four times speed, and then we just sound <laughs> like, just like cocaine up chipmunks. Just, <laughs> like this. yeah, yeah. Shall we jump into your paper? Let's jump into the paper. Um, is this the right jingle? This is the right jingle. The jingle. This is the, the the relaxed jingle. But not the very relaxed it's the paper. It's the paper of the, of the week. week. Yeah. So I'm doing another PNAS paper actually today. I kind of love PNAS. Um, uh, because they're because <laughs> I'm lazy sometimes and I don't want to read 20 pages sorry plant cell I love you but sometimes you long uh, <laughs> but I also like that there's um quite some cross-disciplinary stuff in there so um, we put something on the blog a couple of days back which was about um like new see-through soil and it was actually done by a material science lab so although it was like mm. applicable for us it's it's the original research is this kind of interdisciplinary plurry stuff which I think we miss a bit if we're only looking um, at plant journals for stuff. Anyway, um, my paper is called Structural Analysis of Phytophthora Suppressor of RNA Silencing 2. This is the name of the protein, it's PSR2. Reveals a conserved modular fold contributing to virulence. Um, long title, we'll get into it in a second, but it's by Hei et al, um, who come from the Fudan University in Shanghai, and it came out in April in PNAS. So I think we can start with Phytophthora, which is great because it's like, as, as an English speaker, native English speaker, I always criticize the German language for like shoving too many consonants together. And Phytophthora, I'm assuming is originally a Latin word, but it's something we have in English where it's got PH followed by TH which are these weird combinations which don't make sense. So PH makes an F sound and TH makes a F sound. Um, so I like the word to start with. Phytophthora. 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 So they're filamentous eukaryotic pathogens. So they're this kind of fungi thing um, and they're pretty important. So you might have heard already of Phytophthora infestans. It's the thing that's responsible for causing the Irish famine, so the oh. potato blight, basically, um, oh, okay. leading to a lot of bad times in Ireland. Um, there's also Phytophthora remorum, so a different species, um, which is responsible for sudden oak or sudden larch deaths, so the suddenly death of trees. Um, there's one called Phytophthora soya, a different species again, and it's um, responsible for soya stem and, and root rot. And... Um, I personally know about Phytophthora because we have a different type, which is called Phytophthora simomomai um, in Australia, and it gets into our Jarrah trees and does the mm-hmm. same thing, infests them and hurts them. And it's one. It's called Jarrah dieback, so it's the same thing where the trees end up dead, and 
it's very hard to control. So the basic, the way of controlling is to stop people from moving from place to place and insisting that if people um, move into um, in and out of protected areas, they like put bleach on their shoes to prevent themselves from, mm. from moving these very small um, spores around. Because at least when I was in Australia, so okay, it's a few years ago now, um, they didn't have a good way of controlling it. And, and once you had infestation in, in a bunch of trees, it could it could spread very easily. And so there's no chemical treatment? Is there, you can't... There's, like there's some things that people can do, but my understanding is it's it's not very effective, our mm. way of treating these these big... Um, Yeah, outbreaks of Phytophthora can happen in the world. Um, so this Phytophthora is a hemibiotroph, so it basically comes in and infects um, the the living plants. It comes in at the roots, mm. um, and then it, it continues to live on the plant when it's dead. So it's also like a particularly mean type of parasite because some parasites they deliberately don't kill their host because they need to like move on or, or live yeah. in it. But the ones that kill their host, it's like okay. You're just mean now. Like, <laughs> it's like you're starting to taking away like metabolites and sugars and everything, and then also kill it, and then also and kill then it, and then on feed it on its, its bones on its carcass. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a mean guy. Yeah, so they go into these like um, associations in the roots of the plants. It's hostoria, um, and hostoria involved in nutrient uptake for the plant, but also it's where these um, kind of things snuggle in, and then they can start secreting their virulence proteins into mm. the the plant from the roots and infecting it um, and some of these virulence proteins I mean they go into the plant and they get into the cytoplasm of the plant so they're called cytoplasmic effectors which just means they have an effect on the plant in its cytoplasm <laughs> um, yeah and they one group of the the effectors that has currently been studied um, have a certain uh, repeat so they have an arginine another amino acid a leucine then another arginine so this is like R is for arginine then X is for like whatever amino acid then LR so they're called RXLR effectors mm -hmm. just because they have this kind of conserved motive on them um, and This is like a, a major class of these cytoplasmic effectors which kind of hurt the plants and there's a very large group of them. So they're quite diverse and they have a lot of um, complexity. And complexity is very good for the Phytophthora because the more different like complex things you have, the harder it is for the plant to fight. Yeah. And we know it's always this kind of arms race between like the, the prey and the predator or the parasite and the host to try and make sure that they're winning. Um, and the more you change... Um, The, the harder it is for the other one to keep up. So basically, in the end, you have everything changing all the time on both sides, but nobody's getting anywhere. You're just kind yeah. of like standing still, like you're running very fast to stand still. I think we have a saying called the Red Queen effect in English, which okay. is, I think is from Alice in Wonderland. The Red Queen makes this like political statement like, oh, in my country, one must run very, very fast to do nothing at all or something like okay. this. And it's this idea of like... Yeah. Doing kind of this useless thing. But I wonder if that's like, I'm trying to think of a German idiom that... that corresponds to that but i i can't think of one that we don't like alice in wonderland is one of these pop cultural things that is just not as big in germany like we we know of it but it's not as deeply rooted same with uh the the one in kansas that the wizard of Oz. yeah that's like the big story in the u.s and for us it means nothing all the reference to it They mean nothing. I think The Wizard of Oz makes a lot of sense because it's like it's famous as a musical and musicals don't translate across languages yeah. usually as well, right? Putting the songs 
Yeah, although we like. But German is a very beautiful, catchy, rhythmic language. So <laughs> I mean. <laughs> no, but we had translated musicals, but we talked about musicals in the last or second to last episode. Did we? <laughs> we did. I okay. actually looked, <laughs> looked it up just as a follow up to like this This point. is There are some musicals like We Have Cats in Germany, for example. Well the done. big thing that's now turned into <laughs> a live action like movie. Not just like the animal cats, but like the musical cats the by musical Andrew Lloyd Webber is what we're talking about. Yeah. Well done. Okay, but enough about musicals. Um, what we're we talking about, we're talking about these cytoplasmic effectors and this particular group of them. And these RXLR, this group, their aim is to suppress one of the defense mechanisms of the plant. Mm-hmm. And the defense mechanism of the plant is called RNA silencing. And it's basically like the plant sees RNA which doesn't belong to plants. So it's like, this is this is some non-plant RNA. What the hell is this doing there? And it targets that RNA and just like tries to turn it off so that the, the RNA from the, the um, fungus or the phytophthora can't go and make any protein. So this yeah. is one of the defenses of the plants. But then these effectors from the phytophthora silence the thing that should silence them, their RNA. But does it silence the RNA or does it silence um, like a, something that's creating these RNAs? Uh, the plant is trying to silence the RNA. A, RNA no, silencing. I mean, the plant is using RNA silencing. It's using RNA silencing against the phytophthora. Against the phytophthora, and then the the phytophthora is targeting the protein that's involved yeah. in the RNA silencing. Yeah, that, so that he's was silencing the, the silencer. So, but it's like not cutting down like the the RNA silencing usually works through like complementary other RNA pieces, right? And so it's not. No, it's not going to that RNA. It's going, going to, to the, the, the protein that that's the processing R- this, yeah, yeah, this maturing silencing. And yeah. Um, and this group themselves mentioned that they've previously kind of looked at one of these um, members of silence, silent silences, um, which is called PSR2. Um, and this is kind of the the one the protein that they look at um, in this paper. Um, they know it's involved in, in silencing the silencer, um, and they know that if you knock out PSR2, you actually impact the virulence of the mm-hmm. phytophthora. So it seems to be um, something kind of important. And they also know that there's kind of things that look like PSR2, not just in one species of Phytophthora, but in several different species of mm-hmm. Phytophthora. Um, so uh, it's in the infestants, which is this um, Irish potato famine, and I think it's also in the the soya one as well. So this means that if you understand how this PSR works, you might be able to really help a lot of valuable tree or crop species yeah. against these damn yeah. Phytophthora. And the aim of this paper is basically to, to look at the structure of um the PSR2 and these effectors. And that's because we know that structure of proteins has a lot of impact on how they function. And this is particularly true when the whole point of that protein is to interact with another protein. Mm. So um, the more we know about the structure, the more we can find how we can like kind of attack that structure yeah. and then attack the function and, and prevent the phytophthora um, effectors from shutting off the plant yeah. sciences. Yeah, it's always very important to know the the target that you want to have an influence on and uh, be it like structural or to exactly know the genetic code. I mean, with RNA silencing, there are also ways of using that in pest control. When you know the target gene, then you can design RNAs against that target gene and hopefully they have an effect then on your pest. And so, yeah, work like this is very important. Mm. Um, yeah, to just give an aim to, to aim for, like a, um, a target to aim for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as I said here, like it's all about this protein that goes for another protein. So it's they want to see something that will kind of impact on these protein-protein interactions. Yeah. And there's something else which is kind of cool, um, which is that they've looked at some of these effectors before and they found that they have um, a lot of repetitive motives. So this is things which um, 
might be a certain sequence of amino acids or a bunch of amino acids which kind of make the same structures um, and they're kind of modular blocks like IKEA furniture which can be put all together mm. to make a protein so you might see one protein which has like five of these blocks and then it makes one protein then you can have six of the blocks and you can put them in different orders and suddenly you make a different protein um, yeah and this is really cool because it's a very fast way to evolve. So you can just like copy and paste blocks and then modify them slightly with some selection or you can, um, yeah, like move them from one place to the other, put them in a different order. Um, and then suddenly like instead of having one protein and slowly changing it, you just mix and match blocks and you can have hundreds like yeah. of of different crosses think, very isn't, quickly. Isn't that also why like the in, in human systems the antibody production works? I think they're also like there's like genetic motives that are sort of mixed and matched and that creates all of these like very specific antibodies against targets. Yeah, I, I mean, don't we, know. We I'm, I'm pulling like a face of like eh, I feel like I should know because I mean but it sounds familiar to me like this pro this this process because it's yeah as you said like, a very fast way to adapt and the immune system is one of the places where very fast adaption is necessary to create like matching antibodies against a certain target. And we've talked before on, on the blog about the fact that like um, organisms generally evolve by just copying and pasting so they can steal it from other species if they're doing this horizontal gene transfer or they often just copy and paste their own genome. So this is the same thing but instead of copying and pasting the whole protein and then changing the whole protein you just take little blocks copy yeah. and paste the different blocks and then yeah you have like factorial yeah. combinations. Um, so as I said, these proteins are very modular, but they haven't, they don't really know much about the, the different modules. So um, PSR2 in particular contains one, one module, which is known as YW1, mm -hmm. um, no, WY1. I'm going to have problems with this throughout, um, partially w because Y1. W and Y are very hard. And also... <laughs> WY1. Um, it's also like, yeah, blah, blah. we need but, better names for things. No, also every time I typed it into my laptop, it would correct it to like, a word so I don't know maybe you can teach me how to turn off the the auto <laughs> on the I Mac. always try it always turns itself <laughs> back on with every update and still like every in, in German every D, every time you write DNA it turns it into done, done. which yeah. is then and it makes no sense in this uh, in, in the place but yeah, yeah. I, I gave so up the fight against autocorrect. WY1 was okay because it had a number, but the the so this is the motive that they know a little bit about, and this PSR2, which is a protein they're investigating, it has one of these motives, but then it has like five other motives or six other motives, which are a different type of motive. They're called LWY motives, and that one every time I typed that in, it became lore or it became lay or it became low. It just like kept on trying to correct to a new thing when I kept on like backspace, backspace. No, LWY, backspace, backspace. Anyway, I am fighting a war, an arms race with my computer, just as a fight up for a fight to arms race with the species it affects. In fact, okay, so there's a PSR uh, protein back to where we were. And it has one motive called WY1, and then it has, um, I think, seven of these LSW motives. And nobody really knows what these LSW motives look like um, and also how they fit together with this WY1 to make a whole protein. And as we said, knowing how they fit together in the structure is very important. So um, the first thing, kind of the main thing they did in this paper was try to get a crystal structure. They um, crystallized their protein. They missed like the first 50 or so um, amino acids of the protein. Um, and I think that was because the f those first amino acids were um, like some signaling peptides and things like that. So I'm guessing that they're a bit wobbly. So mm. um, usually if you have things that are very flexible, they're just hard to crystallize. They don't like to like be frozen into place. Um, yeah. 
But in any case, they managed to get the um, crystallized structure of the WY1 and the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, I'm counting them, the 6 LWY7s, um, which make up this, this protein. Um, and basically, the protein structure, when you look at it, it's just a whole bunch of alpha helices. I'm showing you your arm now. But um, the... the just a lot of facility. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, and a helices is like a DNA, but instead of having a double helix, you have one of them. And this is a very common um, shape that proteins fold themselves yeah. into. Um, and it's just all alpha helices. Um, so the, the WY1 actually is a a module that's consisting of three of the helices and then each of these LWYs has five helices. Um, so in the end, you have like just a protein with 33 different mm-hmm. helices um, throughout it. And the thing about the LWY um, modules is that there's not a huge amount of conservation of all the amino acids in this module, but they always make this conserved shape. So, okay. and some bits are, so it, it's somehow conserved, but it's not perfectly conserved. Yeah. Um, but they they look similar in some ways at the amino acid level, but at the at the three D structure level, they look very very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the L Y L W Y. It's so hard. Can is, we come up with new names for these two modules? <laughs> the Louis is different from the Wea one um, because it has two hydrophobic cores. Um, but the cool thing about it is that. It's basically concatenated, so everything is like every module is fitted into the next module Ah, in a way that makes it go forward in one direction. So each of these ah yeah, so not like a Russian doll, like they're not completely contained, but they sort of they fit into each other in a certain. It's more like when you snap lock like um, linoleum together. There's like a so basically each of these um, LWY domains has a kind of hydrophobic core, and. It also has a, a loop which has residues which kind of snuggle into the core. So then they kind of snuggle into the core of the one um, in front of them and each one does it. So they all just move in one direction. Mm-hmm. And this is the reason that in the end, the structure is basically a stick. Okay. And that's quite weird for proteins. So usually yeah. proteins become kind of globular and this guy's a stick. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it is very modular, like click, R- click, click. It reminds me, you remember these pens, these, um, these pencils we used to have in, in uh, school where you had like tiny bits with a little bit of the, the writing part, like with the, not the ink, but the, what is it? Yeah, the, the, the lead. lead. Mm-hmm. The lead. And then you had like... Uh, Different colors sub- and yeah. And then like in a hollow tube when you had to like push them all in and then you could write. And when it was used up, you pushed it in the back and pushed out a new one in the front. <laughs> It's like a little plastic <laughs> thing. I think the people who know what I'm talking about and see what I'm I, I have no idea. Okay, but it's, it's the same principle. It's pretty much this protein. It's a stick with like, things that t- attach into each other. I'm sticking with my like um, linoleum or um, I think I know what you're talking about. It's a quarter pacer in English, but I just don't. I don't agree with you here. <laughs> um, anyway, so they have quite a rigid stick-like structure instead of a more blobby globular structure. Although the authors do say there is some. No, it's, it's not a pacer, but anyway, continue. Sorry. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> but the authors um, said that there still is some flexibility in the structure because it has these these loopy bits which which help it move around a little bit. Um, yeah, but this long stick-like structure is pretty interesting because the longer and more stick-like a protein is, the more contact it has. So it has like a huge surface area, um, which might be very important in its role with interacting with all the protein things. Um, so then that they once they had this, they kind of looked to see if this combination of motifs, these kind of string of LWY motifs um, 
which can concatenate is common in different Phytophthora and they found that there's basically many of these across different species of Phytophthora and um, a lot of them have this WY1 on one end then they have a string of three or four of the LWYs. And usually the last of the LWYs is somehow broken a bit. And the, that seems to be basically because it doesn't need to lock in um, mm-hmm. to the next guy. So it has some some problems with these parts which would normally interact um, with the next the next unit. Um, and as I said, like one of the really cool things about it is that it's it's modular. So they, they noted that the proteins um, which have this L... WY, there's a lot of them, and there's a higher level of diversification than you see in other proteins, um, for example, ones which only have the the YW1. Um, so you see a lot of combinations of units, and that actually made it, they tried to do some um, evolutionary trees to see how this, this certain protein um, evolved and how other ones evolved, but it's very hard to trace the origin of each individual protein, and that's basically because it's taking a mix and match of all of these different um, mm-hmm. modules that it can find. And again, um, this means it's kind of a structure module that can really drive this rapid evolution of the effectors. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so this was kind of the basis of the studies, but the final thing they did was to see like what do each of these different modules, these LWY modules, which haven't really been described before, do in the plant. So they tried deleting um, the different units, mm-hmm. um, the LWY units. Um, to see what effect it was. And they used a Nicotiana benthamiana plant, which is constitutively expressing GFP. And they wanted to see if they could um, put their transgenes in and to see what the effect of silencing was. So basically they're they're checking for the silencing of a silencing. So the GFP should be slightly muted, but then when you add these proteins in, it should be recovered um, mm-hmm. yeah. if if the, the PSR can like stop the muting from happening. Um, and then the GFP will be brighter. So this is kind of the, the output that they're reading. And basically they found that um, they could delete some of the units, so three, four, five, and seven, and they didn't have as much effect, but if they deleted especially the first and the second unit, um, there wasn't um, the suppressive effect. And I think this was mostly a confirmation study because they had already found that this first and second unit were very important for the infection um, of the Phytophthora. So I think this was mostly just a kind mm-hmm. of a checking back. Um, and then they also did knocking out and put um, injected it, um, the different um, versions, sorry, the Phytophthora with the different knockouts into the plants to see how virulent it was with these broken proteins. And again, they seem, they saw that like removing some of these different modules made the Phytophthora different, less vir- vir- virulent, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did mention that in their way of experimenting, it mostly resulted in cell death, which is a bit hard to draw conclusions on because when a cell dies, it can be that there's a lot of virulence that the protein that the um, the phytophthora is winning, but it can also be that the the plant is responding and killing all of its cells to prevent the further the yeah. spread. So like. I guess the old-fashioned example is like when there used to be fires in in wooden housing, they would knock houses down around the edges, like destroy deliberately to prevent it going to the yeah, yeah the live cells. Yeah. So basically, um, in conclusion, they found that this is like a, a basic structural module. This LWY it hasn't been um, described before. It's got a conserved five helix fold, um, despite each of the individual like parts, like each of the modules actually having not that much amino acid similarity. Mm. It has this structural similarity, which is why it's always important to look at the structure, not just look at the yeah. 
yeah, if you would just compare sequences like blasting or like other basic tools, yeah, probably you wouldn't have seen the similarities. I think they could already tell that there was a module based on the the, the similarity of the amino acid. It's not that yeah. different because they already recognize them as something kind of like these repetitive modules, but it's not like super conserved. Um, and they think that this this interlocking clicking in um, is a very interesting mechanism to mean that everything can kind of form together um, and make something that kind of is a stick and can interact with um, the proteins of the plant. And they said that even though you've got this this straight stick interlocking, because you can have variants in the the amino acids which are kind of facing outwards of the stick, you can have a lot of different combinations of proteins of the plant that you're then um, interacting yeah. with as well, depending on how you put them. Um, yeah, and yeah, basically the conclusion I would say is that this module thing is, is a super cool... Um, like natural phenomenon of of just like yeah making prefab proteins like yeah, proteins from prefab bits and yeah quickly adapt and thereby also evading detection or uh, countermeasures and so on it's pretty cool i found the uh, pencils i was talking about they're called push I pencils this is what they look like i'm showing tegan yeah um you can just google push pencil and it's the one ah that's what i originally thought yeah yeah that's exactly what i meant with like you have this hollow tube and then you have like the pencil bits like okay, they're just like putting it in the show notes a centimeter or two uh, in length and then you have several of them and they have like a, a front and a back and they interlock and just like the protein <laughs> it's these push pencils are um, exactly these proteins Okay, sure. I think, okay. <laughs> um, yes, why not? It's a push pencil. Um, yeah. I can't even comment on that. Like, sure. It is very stick-like. Um, that's all these, I have. These individual modules that are interlocking. Yeah. That, yeah. To me, it's exactly the same thing. Okay. To me, it's like tiny push pencils now that drive the... The defense of these, this pathogen I mean, against the plant. What I don't like about your analogy is that, like, this you can like mix around the different numbers. So all of the modules are different in the push pencil. They're all exactly the same. And you in, have to imagine now different colored bits in a push pencil. Yeah, but even so, like in this one, also you can you can have one push pencil with only three bits, or one with like eighty bits. I mean, not eighty. It, it, it tends to range from like three to six or something. But in your push pencil, you always need to have 10 or the pencil doesn't work. That I remember because I would lose bits of the push pencil. Yeah, yeah these day, that's, that's true. The push pencils became absolutely useless once you lost a piece and that's where they're different. And in this one, you also have a front piece of so the WY1 module is has to be at the front. Yeah. You don't have that in a push pencil. And you don't have the end piece either. Yeah, and then you've got a shitty end piece. You can have a bit of at the end in a push pencil where you've like chewed on the back of it and you can no longer put something like fit another <laughs> bit into it. But I think like... <laughs> We're really stretching the metaphor to make this work. Like, it doesn't really work. Okay. Maybe it's time to talk about your favorite plant. It's to time to talk about my favorite plant. This is very loud. That is good. Makes me more, like, energetic. Is my microphone on? Um, your microphone is on, but my I can turn plant. you up a little bit more dun, here. Dun, dun. I don't know if I'm... Got I mean, you're, re you're One, recording two, right here. Okay. My favorite plant this uh, episode is um, the mangrove. Mangrove! Mangroves, um, which are very cool plants. Uh, first of all, like the, the whole 
the word mangrove can actually describe a couple of different things. It can just describe like the entire ecosystem of a mangrove forest. Um, it can also describe like individual species or like a, a, a larger class of species down to like individual species that are all called mangroves and then there are like red mangroves and so on. Um, I want to talk about the family family of um, of mangroves from the um, Rhizophoraceae or Rhizophora is the um, genus of them, which is a specific type of mangrove. So mangroves, um, I mean, you probably heard of them, right? They put their roots in the air. <laughs> this is not something that I can uh, I understand the reference for. <laughs> that that wasn't a good reference in fairness. <laughs> I wanted to say like hands in the air, like you just don't care, but I realized I don't yeah. think that's actually a song. I tried to sing it, but I don't. Is it originally a song? I know that it's a reference, something as reference, like put your hands in the air like you just don't care, but I don't know where it's but from. But there's not a song that's like, put your hands in the air like you just... Okay, this is not the time to discuss this. Put and your hands in the air. Also, me singing on the podcast is always a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> like you just don't... I think it's something from like 90s hip hop or something. You know something. what? Tell me about mangroves. <laughs> so mangroves, there are um, these trees that grow in coastal areas and that are partly submerged by water. Um... And they grow, first of all, they grow in salt water. They grow in tidal areas where you have the tide coming in and out with lots of physical forces associated with that. They're submerged uh, most of the time and they grow in the tropics with like high sun intensities. Um, and so these plants are quite interesting um, because they like adapted to all of these problems that they're faced with. So the first one with like the waves, they adapted by having this like root network that is like... Um, very intricate many like smaller roots together that form sort of a network that anchors them in the ground and mm -hmm. so this breaks up the energy that dissipates the energy of the waves so when the waves come in they sort of get broken on all of the, the root pieces and lose oh, their energy it's like hitting one big trunk in like yeah with yeah. full force and this uh, first of all it protects the mangroves themselves but it also protects all the coastal areas behind it so these things are very important to fight erosion from from waves and they get super good little ecosystems inside the root like networks for little fishes and there's things. plenty of fish uh, crustaceans and uh, other plants that can live sort of in a protective um, yeah, biosystem that is set up by the mangroves, and they can like usually they grow in areas where um, the the tidal forces are not as strong, but they can withstand stuff like tsunamis and so on. So they can actually protect coastal areas mm -hmm. from like bigger waves as long as like they don't thrive too well when you have constantly high uh, wave energy coming in and out. So like the Atlantic coast, for example, would be more problematic for them. But having like uh, from time to time like these massive waves like from a tsunami, they can withstand that and protect coastal areas from that. Um, and the other thing that or the other things that they adapt to is now the the low oxygen. I mean, they're completely submerged. Like mm -hmm. the root system is submerged. And what we know from don't overwater your house plants is roots like air just as well as the rest of the plant. Like mm -hmm. they don't want to be sitting like in just water as well, but they do like air. Yeah. They do like air. They need some gas exchange. They need some air in there. And if they, if it's just wet uh, and just submerged, they they suffer and die. And uh, the same is true for mangroves. They need also air in their roots. And what they do then is they stick out their roots, like what you said. Like put they, your roots in the air. <laughs> put their roots in the air because they do care. <laughs> about not drowning. <laughs> about not drowning. It's like little it's snorkels. Selfish kind of. Okay, sorry. Carry on. <laughs> They're like uh, little snorkels. Um and they're called pneumatophores. Mm -hmm. um, and I wondered how, how does this work that they um, 
like even if it would be like a tube going up uh, going up how does the air actually get down because there's no pumping there there's no lungs that breathe in and out the air um, and it works through osmosis like mm. they have a very fine meshed um, tissue in these snorkels and then sort of oxygen is sucked into the um, into the roots from through these snorkels and they can be up to like 30 centimeters uh, or from 30 centimeters to over three meters I have I think a fact about pneumatophores. Mm -hmm. I think that it's also something that's present in other species like desert plants. So mm -hmm. I read and I wrote something a while back about um, these these dates that grow in the desert. And they also make these... Um, <laughs> Yoram is drinking a weird um, canned drink with basil seeds in it and he's pulling stupid faces. Yeah, because just, there's, suddenly there's pieces. He just hit the basil seed. I haven't hit... I've got grass jelly and I haven't hit the jelly yet, but I, I know what's waiting for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. Um, the dates also put up these... I think it's also pneumatophores, but it's, it's the same thing, but to get water so it's the idea mm -hmm. that they they spread these guys on the surface so if, even if it's just a tiny bit of rain that doesn't even um go into the soil they like yeah yeah these um, pneumatophores or aerial roots um they're quite uh, not, not common but they're found in other species as well also like in, in obligate land plants um sometimes you see it almost looks like um what's it called the tarzan swings on a vine? A vine, yeah. They look like vines coming down, but they're like very solidified in and look like mm -hmm. roots. And these are aerial roots um, that can, they, they, they serve for a gas exchange, but also to collect water from the air. I think also like way back when we did a, a very short piece on the blog about this um, ficus elastica, the really huge rubber trees, and they have like the roots and people use the roots, um, the, the mm -hmm. kind of air roots, and they make them into bridges, like these living bridges that can cross um, distances. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so this is one way of, of adapting now to the low oxygen. Um, then uh, the other thing I want to talk about, and they have more stuff, they like they adapt to the nutri nutrient uptake and to water loss and so on. But I also want to talk about like the salt uh, intake because they grow in salt water and most plants don't really thrive in, in salt water. They don't care for it. Um, and what they do is uh, something that's called a sacrificial leaf so a leaf um, that sort of accumulates a, t a lot of the salt mm -hmm. and dies off and is not very performant as a leaf but it takes up all of the salt transported away from the rest of the plant so the rest of the plant is happy and that one leaf then sort of like falls off eventually and a new like sacrificial leaf um, is made and um, this yeah this helps them to to live in in salt water which uh, also has a lot of real life relevance because one of the the byproducts of some of our agricultural practices is that some places are completely over salinified, um, salinified. Yeah, saline. Saline. Salinified. Salty. <laughs> Saltified. Salty lands. <laughs> oh dear, it is late, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, sorry. So, um, yeah, and. Um, the last little thing about mangroves is the way they handle their offspring because they live in coastal areas. Um, so they have uh, seeds that are buoyant and um, they drop them in the water and then they get sort of washed away and into different areas and then they can sprout there and they can even germinate. Um, uh, did it knock on the door? I think it was your cat. Uh, it was a cat. <laughs> they can germinate in the ocean. I'm going to guess. I'm going to fill in the words. Um, uh no, they can. Uh, what they do is they still germinate on the parent tree, and then um, when they, uh, how to just to get this right, 
Uh, they reach teenagehood. They grow up. They leave home. Basically, they, they, they form this like ready-to-go seedling, and this then then drop into the water and then be washed away. So it sort of like has a a, a head start. Okay. Um, and when it then arrives somewhere where it can grow it and can very quickly like set roots there and mm-hmm. establish itself there, which is quicker than if it would have to like properly germinate in in salt water. Are you pulling the plug again from no, the? No, I'm not touching anything. I'm being very good. Last time she uh, hard, half deflated our uh, bowl to sit on. Um, so yeah. yeah, so that's mangroves. That's why I like mangroves. They're very cool at, at, at adapting. They protect uh, coastal areas. They are uh, home for many uh, wildlife. Um, and they're just cool plants. They are quite cool. So I think we have a new segment where I don't have um, a jingle for yet. So you must sing. Uh, what is the name of the segment? Oh, we haven't really discussed this yet. So um, basically, Yoram and I, over the past few months, especially um, Pride Month, a couple of months ago now, <laughs> um, we've been discussing this idea of diversity in science, and it's something that Yoram and I are super obsessed with, Yoram particularly as a straight, white, German man <laughs> in Germany. Um, no, but oh, yeah. seriously, I, we, we both really believe very strongly in this um, we know from the scientific point of view that you have to have diversity of people and diversity of ideas and and all of this in order to get the best science. Like, So we wanted to have a section where we kind of just highlight different people in science who aren't straight white men. Um, was basically our plan. And I think... Some Are there any, though? <laughs> who knew? <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I mean, maybe you've also seen this come up um, in a, a couple of weeks ago. Alan Turing died... Um, no, Alan Turing was put on the 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 ten dollar bill or the ten pound bill or something like this, mm-hmm. um, and he was very important in the I think it's the Enigma program, project as it's called. So this is um, decoding um, the the signals from from Germany during the war, and saved many lives and helped um, the Allies win the war. At the same time, he was a gay man, um, and eventually, I think there was a burglary at his house that he shared with his partner, and when he reported the burglar, he got taken away and um, basically had to be like chemically castrated and ended up committing suicide, I think, I mean, clearly as a result of this. Um, and it's only now, however many, what are we, like 60 years after the war, how, I don't even know how many years later we are now, um, that we're actually acknowledging in in real public ways these people so that was a very long babble from me but yeah. it's he's important on a, just, he's on a 50 pound note um there we go so that, this is what happened recently yeah this is what happened recently that he will be on the next edition of the 50 pound note and the one Britain. who died is somebody different i'll get to that later um sorry again <laughs> it's late um but yeah so this is things so a lot of people hear about alan turing they they heard about him in, in school i guess especially in the uk but you don't hear this other side of how terribly he was treated by his own government despite the fact that like yeah. he i think he was also like only like not is pardon the right word or no not pardon but like he had a he was a criminal offender back then for being gay yes and that held until very recently when this was lifted and he was like officially recognized as not being a criminal Mm. um which i don't know what implications that has but it's it means that like they're recognizing now that it was uh, absolutely wrong the way they treated him back then yeah, so we're going to um, try to do a section where we talk very briefly about people who are, again, not straight white men in science, just to discuss um, different different points of view. And by white, we're using this term in a very, um, again, Caucasian-centric way, but 
we, we've used before the term white men instead of white men, and we basically mean people who are the dominant within their society at the time. So if you're um, in the whatever dynasty of China, like then you're not going to be a white man, you're going to be a straight Chinese man, but that's still the the dominant um, as far as power goes in that in that construct. So we're trying to kind of stay away from that and discuss people who who were a bit more diverse and also especially situations where the diversity maybe had effects on their science or that, that we don't know about. And we're doing this because we think it's important to discuss these people, basically. Because yeah. And it's becoming more and more clear that this is something that we have to do and that's something that we've been kind of terrible about. Um, this is our attempt. Yeah. So, who did you bring for the f first edition? A very quick one, very easy one, very obvious one. So, this is one that probably most of you have heard about if you do plant science, but also other science. It's Barbara McClintock. So, um, she was born in 1902, died in 1992 good 90-year run um, but she's famous because she got the Nobel Prize um, in physiology or medicine um, in the late in the early 80s um, and she basically was a scientist she did her PhD in Cornell and she was working on um, maize cytogenics so this is like the study of chromosomes and meiosis and mitosis and how all of this happens um, and she did a lot of work generally in helping to like visualize maize chromosomes um, and supporting some some theories that were floating around like um, recombination and crossing over or crossing over um, during the, the meiosis, um, producing like maps of maize, um, looking at the role of the telomere, um, which is at the end of the, the chromosomes and the centromere at the center and how this um, has, has things. But like what she's really famous for and what she actually won the Nobel Prize for is discovering transposition. So this is the idea of transposable elements um, or transposons, which you might have heard about. They're basically bits of DNA that don't stay in the same spot. So they can um, move by either copying and pasting themselves or just like cutting and pasting themselves from one part of the genome to the other part of the genome. And they're super important. A lot of eukaryotic um, DNA by like volume is actually these elements. Some of them are dead. They can't move around anymore, but it's a um, pretty big thing. They can be very, very disruptive. So if you imagine like this element just like jumps inside of a gene, it can, it can ruin the gene function, but they can also be a major force of driving evolution. Um, because suddenly you have all these, they move bits of genes as yeah. they go. So like they can put new promoters in front of genes or change functional elements in front of genes. So yeah. it's a really um, big finding. When she first discovered it, um, apparently it was met with some skepticism. She actually, I think, stopped publishing according to Wiki at least um, and moved into like looking more at ethnobotany. So looking at different races of maize um, in South America, which is also a very important thing. So how, how these different um, races have different... Um, phenotypes and genotypes and we know this now from like the Arabidopsis um, 1001 genome projects things like this where you can find like a lot of natural diversity um, but yeah I think even though she was first publishing on these transposons in the 40s and 50s she kind of dropped it a bit and it was only in the 60s and 70s that it became uh, really more widely accepted across um, scientific fields um, and of course then in the 80s she got her Nobel Prize and at least according to Wikipedia, apparently she's the only woman to receive this prize for the, the physiology or medicine unshared. So not sharing it with other other people. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And I mean, you all know the name already, but that's that's the one we start with because it's an easy one. Um, <laughs> and then we move from there. Yeah. Thank you very much for bringing that. Um, I have to say I'm absolutely culpable of of being ignorant, but not willfully ignorant of uh, many of the great achievers in, in research who are not white men 
in power. Um, we, all, so we all are because of the education system. And that's yeah. like, and that's always the thing with also everything. Like, we're all racist. Just don't be willfully racist. We're all bigots. Just don't be like, yeah. be aware that you, we have these limitations and let's try to fix ourselves as best as we can. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very happy that we have this now. I'm li very much looking forward to exploring all kinds of different people that uh, I wasn't aware of uh, or not as much as I should be. Um, so that's, yeah, I'm really happy for the segment. Uh, one thing that it reminds me of is something that I, I saw, or which just started on, on Twitter um, this month um, or in, in August. Uh, I don't know when this episode will be out. So I'm just saying in August um, this year, it's an account that's called 365 Botany Women um, or th uh, 365 Women in Botany. And this is an account that collects... Um, Uh, one woman every day uh, from the history of botany who did important work uh, to that field. So um, that's also a good place to like a good account to subscribe to and uh, and follow um, if you want to learn. Thank you. Um, Tegan handed me one of her like weird drinks. Um, so if you want to have just like a daily uh, little piece of information about uh, one woman from the history of botany, just follow this account. We'll put also a link in the show notes. So with that, we come to our Fun last fact. segment. Whoa! <laughs> we, <laughs> we overshot. This was way too loud on headphones. Today's fun facts are brought to you by how first drugs. We've been um, doing a Skype interview with someone else, which will come out in a month or two. Um, and we've been playing a lot with our sound levels. <laughs> Not yeah. necessarily for the best. <laughs> I think it's sorted. <laughs> um... Okay, so do you have something fun? I have something unfun, which we can start with and just do really quickly because we don't want to always be too depressing. I also have something like unfun fun. So that will be the segue from your unfun into the for real fun. Okay, the unfun fun is, I think when this comes out, we're at the end of, the, end of August. Um, just as I mentioned, and this was actually raised by a friend of mine on um, Instagram. Uh, at the end of July this year, we hit Earth Overshoot Day. And this was previously oh, yeah. called Ecological Debt Day. And it's basically the day of the year where we on Earth use more than one year's worth of resources. Um, and that obviously has quite big implications. It's that we're using faster than we're allowing to regenerate or creating, if that's the case. Um, and since 2005, it's been in August. So for a good almost 15 years, um, actually it's it was made a big jump in um, 2000, or not a big jump, but it's kind of moving up through August. And this was the first year that it moved out of August into July. So we're now July 29th yeah. this year was um, the yeah. overshoot day. And getting just getting quicker at using up all of the resources. Yeah. And just to say like back in the 80s, so when, when Yoram and I were born, basically the end of the 80s, um, it was in October. So... That's a bit terrifying. Yes. And we're the worst culprits. So before you start pointing fingers at any developing countries, you can also look country by country at, to see how per capita your country is doing. Yeah. And I'll give you a clue. Australia and Germany are pretty much the worst there is. <laughs> like, Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, slightly related to that is that we also had um, like the most amount of flights ever, I think, in July. Um 
I don't remember what the exact measure was, but it's also something that moves up earlier every year. And this time we already reached it in July uh, about the amount of uh, airplanes in the sky um, uh, at the during the year. Um, so yeah, fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I have something that is not related to the climate crisis for That's once. Good. Uh, we talked a little bit about um, the troubles of autocorrect in your um, plants uh, in, in the paper of, of the week that you brought this week. Um, and it reminded me of something. I quickly looked it up. Um, there is a, an article in um, Science Alert, in, in, yeah, it's on Science Alert. Um, that's called Excel is to blame for major typos in 20% of scientific papers on genes. Excel. Go Excel, because Microsoft Excel autocorrects um, mm. gene names into dates and, uh, or numbers. And when that, it's it's almost imp impossible to turn that function off. Mm -hmm. And it's almost impossible to undo that as well. Like if you don't take precautions in the very beginning when you in import your data into Excel, then these errors will happen and then you can't fix these errors unless you restart your entire analysis. We um, have this like additional thing where um, Germans use the comma like um, English speaking people use a decimal point. So often um, if you move it from one computer in our institute which is using German and use it to your computer which is using English or vice versa, it suddenly changes all your things with decimal points into commas which makes it like times it by a thousand or something and then also you have this date function. And, yeah. Uh, it's chaos. Yeah. Um, so damn you, Excel! <laughs> but otherwise, you're so very useful. No, don't don't try not to use Excel for anything that's more complicated than adding two numbers. Is my opinion. No, Excel does great things. Yeah, it messes up twenty percent of your G names on average. So um, yeah, just be very careful when you have to use Excel. Um, be very careful and critical about the outcome of your analysis. Try to use like positive and ne negative controls in your analysis to figure out if the calculations or things that you're doing actually make sense. Make sure you turn, turn that automatic function off. And if you don't know how, just call Yoram. His phone number is... <laughs> As I said, it's like it says here also in the article that it's uh, impossible to turn off that feature of that Excel automatically interprets, tries to interpret like yeah. the type of data that is in there. And I had it so often. I've had I, this date thing where it's like, this is not a date. Like, and especially why? when you convert it back and you say like, this is not a date, this is a number. You get and a completely it, it random number, different number. Yeah. Um, because like, I think it's then a decimal fraction of the day, of the of the year. And then you're like, was it American date or was it English date? Because no, that's I think also it's not different. Even, even more, I think there's like a reference date and then it's sort of like decim in a decimal way counting upwards from that reference date. It's completely bonkers. We have in our um, institute also a booking system, which unfortunately when it was set up, there was something wrong with the date. So it's in the American time, which is very confusing because we all use the thing where you put the date first and then the month and then the year, which is just logical. US get your shit together. But um, it's actually, unfortunately, in this booking system, it's the wrong way around. So every now and then somebody helpful tries to correct it and every time they try to correct it it crashes the whole system and it has to be reset so this was what these emails were about <laughs> this recently this is what these emails were about like so like a couple of times a day in the last few days like this this um major booking for the entire institute has been like <laughs> crashing from stupid bugs of excel <laughs> yeah it's um uh, it's making our life so much easier and so much worse <laughs> 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 yes that's my, my first fun bit um, I have something about sharks. Maybe you saw I this like already. Um, on Silent Science Daily, and I'm not sure how I originally found it, um, but it's on Science Daily. Um, it's this, the original source here. It says a cell press, actually. Um, and it's talking uh, about 
certain shark species, um, a cat shark, which is kind of related to what we like to talk about. Um, Why isn't that the last fact of today then? I have other cat facts. It's fine. Ah, good. We're good. Because Let's I do don't it. have a cat fact. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have <laughs> Quick cats. Um, so it glows. The shark glows. It has um, hmm. biofluorescence, which means like... Oh, cool. Yeah, biologi- biologically made fluorescence. When can um, I put it in my genes as a tag? Yeah, so actually it does it on its skin, has this... But maybe not because it's not a protein. So um, most of the things that we know that glow come from jellyfish. So GFP, green fluorescent protein, is the obvious thing. But there's also like calcium sensors, um, aquarin, I think, which Mm -hmm. is from like maybe a different jellyfish species. Um, So these glowy things also come often come from these like beautiful glowing jellyfish. Um, This one is uh, not a protein. It's a small molecule. which could be super cool because it could mean we have like something which you can't do with proteins. Now you have like a, a molecular equivalent um, for this. So um, Jason Crawford is the corresponding author to the study. We'll put the link up to the original study um, on the, the show notes as well because I can't see it at the moment. But um, an extra thing they mentioned is that the, the metabolites also seem to have some kind of um, antimicrobial properties. So um they they don't get any like disgusting bacteria growing on their skin mm. and they also glow which is i wonder if it's a side effect or if it's like intended like if it gives them advantage who cares like if i had deodorant and then it also made my armpits glow like i would just be thrilled like imagine like you just like lift your arms and instead of people being like you smell which is the default <laughs> state they're like not only do you not smell but also your armpits are beautiful that's true that would be very nice Tegan, tell us about your sparkly armpits <laughs> this is very nice right this is indeed very nice i'm just trying to look at my my next um uh, fun fact so instead because i just can't find i talk about another one which might be interesting to the science folks uh, listening to us it's something that i uh came across on on twitter somebody mentioned it. there's a tool called illustrate um that uh, uses um, available protein data and turns it into like illustrations. You might have seen them sometimes with like uh, where which they almost look like a cartoon, um, but they're very uh, very accurate uh, modeling all of the atoms of uh, of proteins. And you can use the protein database ID, um, put that in, and then it renders these images out. Um, we'll put a link there as well so that's probably more interesting to the people who work with this stuff but if you are also maybe like a science journalist or something and you have a protein idea like I tried this out for example with Rubisco you can look up in the protein database find your protein drop the idea into this little tool called illustrate and then you get a figure you can get like an image that you can use to illustrate something with it which I found quite cool because Mm. I like the style that it does it in yeah nice and I mean also like it's not really fair to expect that every scientist is also a beautiful artist, but sometimes the way you present your your images makes a big impact on how understandable yeah. and how how clear. Like I've seen figures where it just takes takes months to work out what's what's going on. Actually, um, my friends and I started going to the swimming pool, and we were looking at the timetable plan for the swimming pool. Maybe I'll put that on the link on the show notes as well. This is a two-dimensional image which shows the swimming pool, and you have to try and work out when it's available for you to swim in. But it's a two-dimensional image with a third dimension of time somehow put on top of that. And I, I don't know. <laughs> it's like one of these like i'll show you and maybe i'll even put it up there it's one of these like mind tricks and we decided that whoever like 
gets the mind trick and can work it out in less than like two minutes can ultimate like immediately become a group leader in our institute. Like, like, you now get this award or you can have this Nobel Prize because it's just, it's, and it's for a swimming pool. It's a public swimming pool, but they don't want the public to know what's happening. Like it's just, it's completely bizarre. Okay. <laughs> my other thing, my last uh, fun fact for today is um, if you run protein gels and you run out of uh, Poinceau uh, dye, which mm-hmm. you use to stain proteins uh, in a reversible way. So, I mean, for the people who don't run protein gels that often is um, you you run, you run you separate your, your proteins by size on an acrylamide gel. But the problem is that proteins are pretty much invisible. Like you have a clear gel. like It looks like a piece of like jelly essentially and thick glad wrap <laughs> yeah. thick cling wrap and um yeah and you you have proteins in there you know because you put them in there but you don't know where they are so you stain the thing and you use usually um uh, or one way to do that is poinceau and it uh, stains them right it binds to the protein structures and stains them and somebody on twitter we put a link to the tweets in the in the show notes figured out um, Should I guess? Is it a bodily fluid? No, no. Okay, no. I, I it's, it's in Glasgow. So what what did they use instead when they're from Glasgow? Haggis. No. Uh, 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 I can I can get this one. Guinness? No, that's Ireland. Um, no, yeah, Guinness. It's no, it's Guinness is Irish, I think. Okay, it doesn't matter. What did they use? <laughs> they used urn brew. Do you know iron that? brew. Iron brew. It's iron brew. Iron oh, that brew. stuff is, it's like bright orange and it's, it's bright horrible. Orange and it contains as well uh, Poinceau as a colorant in there. Whoa. And so you can use that um, to stain, um, yeah, to stain membranes. If you're in Scotland and you run out of Poinceau, um, if you're in Italy and you run out of Poinceau, you can also use something else. Wine? No, similar. Uh, also orange. Fanta? Aperol. Aperol. Um, it Aperol also con- looks more like Ponzo, actually. It's got the more ready colors. Yeah. yeah. And it also um, contains that. So whenever you see E124 on the label in the, in the ingredients mm-hmm. or directly Ponzo f- uh, 4R, um, then you can use that to stain membranes. Have we got a German equivalent? Um, I don't think so. Like I'm, I'm not aware of uh, German soft drinks that contain that. Um, let me just quickly... W- uh, Google that, but I think um, might be illegal here. Yeah, uh, it's it's not important. I just thought like I just yeah. I think most of the sources I found nowadays from the UK. It might be that it's just not something that that is accepted by consumers here because it's like it's an on the EU level. Uh, the um, EU has very strict regulations on these artificial colors, which I mean we don't have in Australia. Yeah, but at it least. has it has an E number, which usually means that it's um, like registered for use in. Uh, in, in Europe. Does it? Yeah, it's like for the ingredients there and there's a list of many different chemicals. They all get this number so they're like shorter on the on the labels mm-hmm. um, and that means they're registered. Um, and as, the E stands for food. Europe, are you sure? I think so, yes. Because we use E's in Australia but we might also just think that we're in Europe. I mean, I'm on, on thin ice here. It's like um, Eurovision. Maybe it stands for like Europe as defined by Europe, Eurovision so Australia also counts. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, shall we go to something else? Yes. Um, a very short one is that Carrie Mullis has passed away. Um, this will be a couple of weeks old by the time we actually release this. Um, it happened in the middle of August or a couple of days ago when we were recording. Um, you guys might know him because he's a guy who published and invented PCR. So this mm. is like the most uh, yeah, used technique. Um, 
I, I saw people mentioning that he passed away, sadly. So it's interesting for two reasons. Firstly, um, when he first published the PCR, he got rejected from one of the, the big journals. Um, so it didn't go into a high impact factor, factor journal. But of course, now it's like the most used technique and it's one of the most um, well cited. So he, it is an idea of um, what we call it. So he pushed the impact factor of the journal, whatever he published in. <laughs> also, yes. Um, but these are usually in like a few years of windows. So I'm yeah. sure it didn't last. But um, no, it was more that he also got rejected from his favorite journal. So just keep that in mind if, if you ever get um, rejected from your favorite journal or the high impact journal that you, um, high impact factor journal, I should say, that you want. Um, and the second thing is that apparently he was a bit of a weird character. So I'm looking at um, a an article again, uh, this time on The Scientist. I can again put the link there. But yeah, he was known as a weird figure in science and a flamboyant philanderer. Just mm-hmm. as a reminder, it's not philanthropist, which is the one who gives the money. It's the sexy one. Um, <laughs> and he was also like evangelizing for the Latter-day Saints, which... So, to me, it brings up a, a, f- a few questions because um, I think that you should be able to be a separate person um, and a separate scientist. I think these two things should be um, separate. So, you shouldn't be judging somebody's science on their spirituality. But then the next thing it says that he just denied the evidence of both global warming and HIVs as a cause of AIDS. So, now we're re- moving into territory where I'm like... Yeah, this is no longer a lifestyle choice. And also, when he was denying these these global warming and, and HIV as a cause of AIDS, was he doing it as a scientist? And I think that's something that is a bit like a blurry line. Then, um, so a little bit controversial, I would say. But yeah. in any case, um, a huge, um, amazing um, contribution to science. And in fact, it's even here in the article that both Nature and Science, which are really the two biggest um, publishing houses in our field, rejected the manuscript that he wrote and it was ultimately published in Methods in Entomology. So this is like a, a, a smaller as such um, journal in the late 80s. Um, yeah. I don't have any more fun facts prepared for today. So. Um, okay, we end with the cat fact then. Huh? I think we end with the cat fact then. This is on um, the Science Magazine. Speaking of science um, kind of news pages, I think one of my friends sent it to me because I was saying that we need facts about cats for our podcast about plants. Um, and it's by David Schutz. It was published on um, the 8th of August and it's just called Mystery Solved? Question mark Why Cats Eat Grass. Why do you think cats eat grass, Yarm? So they can come back upstairs and vomit on a carpet. Yeah, which is pretty much just written in this, um, this paper. So <laughs> most... <laughs> Most people think that their um, cats eat plants because they want to vomit, um, because they're already sick, or like there's this kind of mythology that they're they're feeling already ill and it's to help them. I thought I always thought the uh, understanding was that like they lick themselves constantly, so they have fur in their stomachs, and to get it out, they also eat fibers like grass, and that helps them vomit out the fur balls. And that was my understanding. Okay, so this this but, I've never heard I mean, that. I, I, I heard did, this. It was it wasn't studied uh, like this. Is what I heard. So like, what does the study say? I mean, it's like it seems like it's a kind of small observational kind of study. It was presented at um, the International Society for Applied Eth- Ethology. Don't know what that is in Bergenstein. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know ethology ethics. Applied ethics. Okay, you're and gonna they're look studying that up. vomiting cats. 
Um, yeah, so they basically said that the vomiting happens sometimes as a byproduct of eating the grass, but it's not the aim of it happening. And they came up with the idea, um, which is based on research of chimpanzees and other wild animals, which is that it would normally help an animal to get rid of their intestinal parasites. Um, so basically when you eat the grass, the muscles in your digestive tract have to work harder to digest grass than they do to have like um, less fibrous diets. And this helps like somehow wash out all of... Um, the in- intestinal parasites and they say like today's cats don't really have these parasites because they're like domesticated but um this is a possibility um but they do have in parentheses that scientists do not test another co- common assumption which is that eating grass helps cats throw up hairballs so mm. this is a very much an open topic of debate um we're looking forward to more research on I this topic in the future like, people are on the fence about this all the time is it the hairballs? Is it the parasites? Who the knows? The only thing we can say is you should go and watch your cat for many hours on end and yeah, like not just your arm, like all of you. Like go now, stop what you're doing, go home, watch your cat. Ethology is the science of animal behavior, which comes as a big surprise from a paper about animal behavior. But why don't I, I mean, I just don't know that word. Yeah. I'm sorry. Stupid? I'm sorry to break it to you, Tegan. You don't have, you don't know the English vocabulary. I cannot differentiate between etymology and entomology still, and one is about words and one is about bugs. Like, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to. Okay, entomology is bugs, but like I have to always do that like mental. So etymology is just words. I have to do the mental check every time. Like, yeah. Dun, dun. <laughs> Okay, I think that's enough for today, right? Yeah, um, the, it, before the 1950s, this word was hardly used. Um, it only uh, it peaked. See, it's not it's not our fault. We did most of our education before the 50s. Like, we really have no excuse. Yeah, but it peaked in 1978 and since then has been declining again and now is at the level of 1966, the use of the word uh, ethology. That's not useful information, is it, Your But it is information you have in your brain now. And it will replace another p- important bit of information, um, and you can thank me for that. So, <laughs> before this completely deteriorates into just already. rambling, <laughs> it's not um, deteriorating to me just having like a mouth full of grass jelly <laughs> yeah. for my delicious grass jelly drink. I like the the basil seed drink that I bought. Like I went today to go Asia in the uh, Asian supermarket uh, in Berlin, and I asked uh, Tegan if she wanted to have something from there. She says like surprise me, and I tried to pick the thing that to me was the weirdest. Um, I've had this before. Sorry, dude. Yeah. I've had that one as well. He's just so much weirder than I am. Yeah, and I have I picked <laughs> one that's a, a basil seed drink, mm. boisson de la semence du basilic, uh, as it says here on the Beautiful. can as well. Um, and it's just like it tastes like a bubble gum for the first half, and then you just get like weird jelly seeds in your mouth. Um, so I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, also, I bought uh, tapioca balls uh, to make my own bubble tea. Oh, cool. Um, I mean, you did that now that bubble tea is actually becoming popular in in Berlin. No, bubble tea, this is actually an interesting thing. Bubble tea used to be a big thing in uh, in Germany for about a year. And um, then a paper was released where somebody um, analyzed the chemical components oh, no. of bubble tea. And they found some carcinogenic stuff there, but in small amounts. But it was completely blown out of proportion by media. Mm. And so the German public thought um, these things are carcinogenic. Bubble tea is, is toxic. And so like lots of shops opened up and like Asian entrepreneurs uh, they they like invested heavily in these and they thought this is a trend that's like going in Southeast Asia for a while now it is coming to Germany let's hop on the train and like let's 
built a, a f uh, our living based on this. And then this whole news story broke and people stopped drinking bubble tea completely in Germany, apart from like Asian immigrants who knew that it's not, uh, that it's absolutely safe. And so many people's livelihood was destroyed through that. And the researcher who did the study, he feels terribly sorry nowadays. And Good. he tried to to talk to the media to get that corrected, but the media didn't care because like they broke the story already and that's it. Mm. And um, so yeah, he, he feels sorry for that because like in his research, it didn't say that the drink is toxic. He just found some traces of some problematic compound in some samples. Which is like everywhere, right? And, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, and newspapers wrote stories as if bubble tea is the next big thing that will kill us and is coming from the East. Um, and then mix that with like latent to open German racism against Asian people it immediately um, re resulted in this trope of like this toxic bubble tea um, and so now we don't have bubble tea apart from like in some cities in Germany Berlin luckily has I think two stores or three stores no no that's the thing so like in the last couple of months there's been an explosion so there's now like a whole lot of new ones and they're, so. they're like like kind of genuine ones not just like crappy German really sugar like water tea. ones. There's this one store in, 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 in Mitte that I quite like. It's always frequented with uh, by, by Korean people, which tells me that it's probably a good deal there. And um, yeah, I quite, I, I really enjoy it. And it's so, not just like German flavored. What would your German flavor of bubble tea be? Probably like peach and Guys, sugar. if you don't live in Germany, do you know that in Germany they sell sauerkraut saft? It's like, it's <laughs> you know sauerkraut, it's, it's fermented cabbage. You can buy that as a, like a one liter Tetra pack. Yes. And when I was like first in Germany, I went to the store and the lady in front of me was literally just buying two liters of that. She didn't have anything else. She bought two liters of that. I thought, you know what? This seems like a terrible idea, but this lady loves it. And they stock it right next to the juice. So you have like apple juice, orange juice, tropical juice, sauerkraut juice. So I thought I'm going to try this. It tastes exactly as you imagine. It is terrible. And apparently then all the German friends were like, ha ha ha. No, we only use that if we're very constipated. <laughs> yes, it's a uh, laxative. Thanks, Germany. So but then, I don't know why we, buy, why we sell laxatives in liter packs next, next to the orange to the juice. Orange juice. So I have no explanation for that. Then I had my very um, petty revenge on Germany. I took half a liter of it home to Australia. And I told every Australian I could meet that this is what people drink in Germany. And that they have to try it if they want to like acknowledge my existence in Germany. <laughs> Suck at Germany. <laughs> yeah, we have no culture. Um, <laughs> you have beautiful culture, but some of that culture involves putting sauerkraut near the orange juice, and that is not okay. You need to like move, just put it somewhere else in the store, like separate compartment, <laughs> like <a> <laughs> with a toilet. Like you have a section for a toilet cleansers, toilet paper, toilet. Like this is where the sauerkraut zaft. Like clearly, this is related to the toilet. No, I think it's it's part of a healthy breakfast. <laughs> Can you have your cup of coffee, your sauerkraut saft, <laughs> mm. and some very dark bread. Um, you're, do you think your like gastrointestinal like system would just adapt to that? So then, like, I wonder. Like after a while, you just couldn't without the the saft. I yeah, I mean, I know some people. Like, I don't personally know them, but I know of people who like regular buy this they also buy plum juice which is another thing that we mm. use as a laxative here apparently like germany is all about like laxative juice <laughs> do, do you know that the rest of the world thinks that germany has an obsession with going I, to the I bathroom heard I, I heard that <laughs> okay and i think there's some base in that <laughs> i need to stop talking now i'm gonna get thrown out of this beloved country <laughs> no, um but then i'll be thrown out with you <laughs> i love you germany please I... don't kick me out <laughs> 
<laughs> I think we should end. Yeah. Please follow us on all of the social media. On Instagram and on Facebook, we're at Plants and Pipettes. On Twitter, we are at Plants Pipettes. The original website is www.plantsandpipettes.com. And please leave us a review on iTunes. If you like this podcast, it helps us a great deal in getting found um, through podcast search engines and uh, hopefully be picked up by like Apple's feature thing that nobody understands how it works. But definitely giving us like six out of five stars helps us a lot. Yes. And... Goodbye. Oh. Opening and closing music. Caravana, <laughs> Caravana by Philip Gross. And uh, that's it. Goodbye. Bye.